Welcome to the next edition of Grid Forward Chats. On today's episode, we have guest host Anne McCabe. Anne is an advisor here at Grid Forward and also a commissioner with the Illinois Commerce Commission. Anne chats with Audrey Zeibelman. Audrey is a former uh, commissioner, a former market organizer, a former uh, investment director, and uh, wearing a new hat these days, advising a number of energy companies. Listen into the discussion. Welcome to Grid Forward Chats. I'm Anne McCabe, commissioner with the Illinois Commerce Commission. And today I'm having a discussion with Audrey Zibelman. Audrey, would you like to tell folks what you've been up to recently? Sure. It's great to see you, Anne, and congratulations on your, I guess, reappointment. Is it reappointment? Yes. Second term. Yes, it's fantastic. So I am, I, I guess I'm in this like the tertiary stage of one career. I don't, I don't, and um, I'm, I last year I uh, left X. I, I still do some advisory work to them, but I'm very much focused on working with, on several boards, all in the clean tech space and advising several uh, companies and, and basically enjoying really working with some fantastic companies and, uh, and at a time that I think, you know, is um, for those of us who've been working on things like decarbonization and innovation, it, it's like the time is now and it's super exciting. So I love being part of it. And I even love being part of it where I don't have the key responsibility of running an organization. So it's even better. Yes. Well, given your experience as a state regulator in New York, a market executive in Australia and a PJM, and now, as you said, an advisor to clean tech companies and organizations, what advice do you have for state utility regulators? I think that it's it's really interesting. We, we're going through a whole different time and place, I believe, when it comes to uh, where the energy industry is going. And uh, I, one of the things that I think will be really important for state regulators is to actually um, start thinking in terms of what are we going, how are we going to drive an efficient transition to an outcome that we both want to occur and we know is going to happen anyway. And the question is for us as regulators, how do we make it occur in such a way that the interest of consumers are protected both during the transition and after? And so it's almost like we're done the debate of whether the industry's changing. I think the question is how do we effectuate change in such a way that we feel satisfied that we're doing the, uh, the best thing for consumers in the end? And any thoughts on how some states have done that or ways to do that. I think that that is the challenge we as state regulators face is how to have a, an efficient clean energy transition and still have affordable rates. Yeah, so I think there's a few things that I would love to talk to you and other regulators about and I think could be a really great subject of, of NARUC really, of just mm-hmm. the how, right? And so a, a few thoughts that I have. One is, you know, we're, we're entering into a very different time in terms of when we developed incentives and things like that, it was all focused on, the, on how to change utility behavior. 
And, and so it was, was almost like, you know, one was how do we get utilities to uh, pay attention to energy efficiency or support energy efficiency? How do we you know, start thinking about um, looking at how we in- integrate rooftop solar uh, or also get incentives to get people to acquire it? It was those types of questions that were the moment of the day. And this is a little bit of the experience I had in Australia, where we went from a situation really rapidly within four years, where it went from, again, government incentives with predictable um, sort of uptake of solar based on people who are maybe technology leading or environmentally leading, to actually it shifted largely because of prices and a system black event in South Australia where it stopped being a vanity or identity product for consumers, but simply like I have cars in my garage, I'm going to put solar on my roof. And, and the grid wasn't ready, nor was regulation mm. for that consumer driven change. It wasn't any longer a function of policy or, or programs. It was purely, this is where I'm headed. I think we're going to see the same thing around EV pickup, which I know has everyone sort of hyper aware. One, we do have programs. Secondly, you know, the car manufacturers aren't going to sit there with all that inventory and not try to move it. And we have got to have the grid in a position to accept it, but do it in such a way that it drives efficient outcomes, which means like right now, we have to think about it. And I think we could see the same with electric hot water heaters and inductions. Yes, there will be early adopters, but then it'll become the thing that everyone does or all new houses. And and so we have to, we know how long it takes to get things done in this industry. So we have to be thinking about, well, how do we do it differently? So I think it's a different set of problems. And the one thing I would like the most, and I don't see, I see starting conversations but I think it would be a really interesting conversation is, well, what if, you know, when we think about we went from landline to broadband, we mm-hmm. did a rollout of broadband. And even when we electrified the, you know, the, in, the tw- in the 20th century, we, we, we rolled it out. We didn't just wait for people to raise their hand and say, do you want electricity? And so should we be thinking about as regulators that we're going to assume, and this is where we ended up in Australia, where we had to uh, we had to support 100% penetration of rooftop solar because that's where it was headed. Is well, let's assume we're headed towards electrification over the next decade, and 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 we want the grid to be able to integrate these things plus batteries, solar. So what? What do we need to do around investment, integration of VPP, digitalization, information to drive and market and regulation to drive that in an efficient way, as opposed to asking utilities to defend it? So then I think that allows for a whole different framing around what kind of knowledge, plus, frankly, the other issue we have, as you know, is uh, climate change is hitting us. And I'm not saying that as a political thing, Texas is a reality. What happened in December in the Northeast is a reality. How many of these events, which means we have this other challenge as regulators that just as we're looking at electrification, 
we have to think about resiliency in a very different way. And the tail risks are, are much more significant as well as the complexity of managing the grid. So if we don't really start driving towards, well, what's that world look like and how do we get there versus debating? And then the other piece is because now for the first time we're talking about mobile to, uh power in the form of EVs and retail goods that could um, work the same everywhere. And this is the hardest thing I think in the US is how do we get 50 state regulators to say, well, hang on, wouldn't it be more efficient and economic if we can drive demand and drive the cost down together versus yes. and, going yeah. it alone? And, and the states uh, are in different places but I think we're all trying to figure out how to capture and optimize the IIJA and IRA funding. Any thoughts on how to best focus and uh, maximize those funds? Well, I, I think the way to maximize those funds is to say, you know, we, we will, that the, that the most efficient thing we can do is going to be, basically getting our companies into a place where we're not just looking at infrastructure investment, but we're looking at infrastructure investment that's going to drive a much more flexible grid and the ability to use DER because, there, you know, I don't know how many more times we, we need to study this issue, but being able to manage things from the edge of the system is, is both much more economically efficient, but frankly, as we think about renewables, and uh, the fact that you're going to have higher penetration of renewables, having grid flexibility at the le at the load levels is necessary because now you're shifting from supply that was highly controllable to demand that was predictable to supply that is highly variable and then demand that can be controllable if we aggregate it the right way. And that that not doing not paying attention to that just means you're you know, it's going to be harder for everyone to, to be successful. And on the uh, flexibility of the future grid, I read some of your, your recent posts. Um, talk a bit more about how we avoid uh, making the electric load and, and transport parasitic. Uh, just what's needed to have that kind of uh, flexibility on the grid as we move forward. Sure. So, you know, we have to uh, recognize that a lot of the systems that we've built were built around the idea that each utility, the, the distribution utilities were, were not interconnected, obviously, and that the transmission utilities were barely interconnected. So everyone had their own tools. And the information was almost around engineering, looking at power system principles, etc. And And so a lot of the systems don't talk to each other. They still don't. And the ability to exchange information and visibility becomes really, really difficult. That was true, right? And that was the best thing we had. Now we're living in a whole different world where, where things like digital twinning is becoming more and more common. The ability to have visibility and information exchange being easy. You know, you think about the internet, et cetera, about how easy it is to exchange data from you know, interoperability. So what I... What, the, what to me has grabbed me about the work that the UK has done around the digital spine and, and Australia is doing similar work is we need to think about a reference architecture for the system where 
everybody understands the rules around interoperability and protocol. So it's easy to develop applications on the system and that there's a, you know, rules of the road around governance uh, of data, how to protect it, things like that. But at the same time, there's a great deal more transparency and ease of looking at these things so that, for example, if a company is a VPP company, they can go anywhere in the country <laughs> working with any distribution utility and the same sort of network architecture is at play versus what we have now, which each utility is trying to figure it out, but the systems are not going to be interoperable. And so if you think about that and data exchange, and that's the way the UK is thinking about it. So I think about this as a regulator. Imagine you had a tool uh, for ComEd where they said, look, in these weather conditions, we will show you where our vulnerabilities are in the system. And it's a digital twin. It's our actual system. And we'll show you where it is. And then we'll run the optimization of what's the most economically efficient way to solve it, whether it's batteries behind the system, et cetera. And your staff and you and ComEd and the market can see all the same issues. So there's no longer a debate of where it needs to go. It's just how to solve it in the most efficient way. And then when those VPPs are on, you can have, because you've developed this system, the transactive grid so that if one particular set of batteries or generators aren't working, another one says, hey, I can do it. And everyone can see that it's there. And the other last piece is, you know, how we move to automation, because, you know, frankly, we're going from hundreds of generators, even in PJM to billions of devices. We're not going to be sitting there doing command and control dispatch, but the grid operator and owners need to be able to to make sure and monitor that the system is remaining stable. And so building that kind of architecture isn't something that we should ask each utility to figure out. It's what we need to do as an industry. And frankly, the more we do it and we can use things like machine learning, this is where I think artificial intelligence is really helpful, is then we can solve these issues. And, you know, if the problem is in ComEd and we say, oh, it's 70% penetration of EVs, this is going to be an issue. Here's how we solve it. And they run the same use case in Seattle. The machine will say, oh, we know how to solve that. This is what we need to do. And I think... That's the kind of thing regulators ought to be spending. I think if I, I I have the benefit, uh, frankly, of having left, gone to AEMO, seen the problems and sat in Google and sort of understand how software can solve things. I feel like as regulators, we just don't have that knowledge. Utilities don't particularly have that knowledge. But if we don't figure out a way to use it, we're cutting ourselves short in terms of the opportunity to make the transition work a lot better. So go back to your earlier comment. I think we've hit on some great topics for NARUC panels. And at the end of the meeting in February, DOE, NARUC, and SEPA had an afternoon workshop on virtual power plants, uh, vehicle to grid, buildings. uh, And we need to continue that discussion and I think uh, help more 
regulators connect the dots and ascend that learning curve. Uh, so any, any more specifics on the topic of how software can solve things and what you're seeing in some of the companies or clean tech that you're advising? Sure. I mean, what I'm uh, seeing is the, you know, companies that have created the ability to integrate distributed energy and optimize it on the system. Um, and Camus Energy is one of the companies I'm advising that's, that's doing that. Uh, entities like SPAN, which have uh, smart panels in the home, make the whole process of electrification faster and easier and simpler. Um, and, and other companies that are working on, which is, I think, another important area, is how do we use existing inf in, uh, infrastructure, particularly transmission, and look at reconductoring as opposed to building new and uh, what incentives we have for that. So I think what, what would be useful is, one is we have an initiative around what are an, an education piece of what are going to be the key components of the digital archetype for the grid. You know, you're going to need smart meters, right? You need AMI. It shouldn't be a debate anymore. We need sort of advanced AMI. We need better communication and visibility. We need tools that allow us to model in true real-time sub-meter because we're talking about power electronics, sub-nanosecond sub, sub, uh, uh, and millisecond because it's, it's faster, right? So we have to have those tools. And um, we, we need the ability to use automation. So we need to have things happening at the edge of the system where, things, where data can talk to each other. So we need these data lakes. And I think what would be fantastic is we spend time in NAROC, not with the understanding that compared to historically when these kind of debates around the future of the industry were sort of rife with politics, we're now talking about consumers wanting to buy goods that um, are not driven by necessarily how they vote. <laughs> and, and so it's going to be really important as regulators, we think about that. Plus, you know, the, you know, the climate is not going to be just looking at certain states. It's going to get all of us. And we need to be making sure that the system is resilient. So, so that suggests the ability to integrate at the edge is no longer a want to have or nice to have or if it happens, but should be considered the future of the system that we're going to be designing. And what we have to do is make sure we understand the, you know, the, the those real complexities and how they can be solved. I, I think about this way, Anne, if we built the internet state by state, we wouldn't have the internet. So we need that kind of global looking. And I, and I believe that that's something Nehruk could um, really tackle as an institution or, or group. And speaking of reconductoring lines, the whole area of transmission planning, especially at the federal and regional levels, um, thoughts on how to optimize planning, whether it's within RTOs or cross regional. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, that's an, another topic that um, I feel like we could, we could learn a lot. So when we develop the, the, certainly the industry, the, the transmission system, the 
power system, right? Before it was all vertically integrated utilities who were basically serving local load and building systems around what they expected to be the, de- you know, the demand and, and demand profiles of their system and the generation, et cetera. So it was one entity who was looking at all of it and they were able to take into effect both the adequacy of supply they would need, plus other issues like frequency, et cetera, and reactive power, all that. When we're rebuilding the power system around renewables, <clears throat> that issues, those issues around how the system integrates becomes even more complex because you need to make sure that you have enough firming capability where you need it, plus that you're also addressing things like when you retire big coal plants and gas plants, you lose inertia, system strength. And then these elect power electronics, the, the, the engines will start working against each other because you, they haven't been modeled collectively, they've been modeled individually. So they're not synchronized to the system, they're through power control. So it's a very different technology. The way we ran into issues in Australia, because we were putting renewables at weak portions of the system, and um, consequently, we moved to a process where we created renewable energy zones, where we identified what where the best places were to put renewables, and then developed a plan as a system. In other words, not just looking at adequacy, but thinking about well, when the coal retires, where are we going to have problems around lack of inertia, the ability to control frequency? So we designed it that way. We involved the states and governments to see what are the best places from an environmental standpoint, as well as a uh, you know community acceptance, getting the communities engaged, understanding the costs, figuring out who should pay, how they should be paid, all of that in advance of it so that you didn't have the cues. And that was just, I think, in the U.S., we have the regional planning processes for the uh, for the for the RTOs, but I think what we need to do, and this again, is once you decide this is where we're going, then the question becomes how to get there most efficiently. If we develop these renewable energy zones and had the models that actually showed, and I think NREL and the labs can help, what are the most efficient ways? Input from the states and the communities about you know what the effect is on them and then went ahead and identified it and built it, we would de-risk a lot and make it a lot more efficient. And I think the, the setting that as an ideal and then working through what the regulatory changes or legislative changes need to occur to make it happen would be a lot better then, you know, I saw the article in the op-ed in the New York Times today, but this isn't about one or two pieces of legislation, because as you know, it's everything from FERC's authority down to local planning authority that needs to be re-looked at. And I think once you have that vision and where the communities got comfortable in states is that they felt like they were in control over where stuff was going to go. And, and we could co-optimize both economic development and where the transmission was going to be and what the system requirements. And, and getting that, that, and that is sort of is more reminiscent to me of when we built the grid in the first place. I know some people say that's heavy-handed because you could still use competitive processes for who bids. But 
at the same time, unless you have a real sense that the system is going to work after it's built, you're just hoping the right generators retire at the right time. You don't, you can't control it. And you can find that you've built all this stuff. And then all of a sudden you have a big inertia issue or frequency issue that you couldn't anticipate. So I think, I think that that kind of discussion around rebuilding the system and then looking at, and that's where you can take into advantage, well, can we reconduct our systems? Will that be faster? How do we plan the outages to be efficient? What does that imply if some of the generators that we weren't expecting to retire, retire? Do we have programs in place to retain them so we're not building, you know, in reaction to, but in anticipation of, and those types of things. Yeah. And we had a uh, session this morning on uh, summer preparedness with the RTOs and utilities and uh, consumer groups. And one of the uh, things that came up was, at least in the MISO region, they are trying to slow down some of the retirements while the rest of the system uh, catches up. So, and, and on the topic of renewable energy zones, Illinois passed the Climate and Equitable Jobs Act, September 2021. It's over 900 pages. But as part of that, we're doing a renewable energy access plan, and it's looking at renewable zones. Uh, so so that it's it, we're working on several levels, as you said, local, state, regional, interregional, and federal. Um, and, and the question is, you know, that's, you know, how, that that is fantastic and how do we make that the model for the country right and and yes and the other plug i wanted to make was using the national labs they've they've helped us a lot in looking at storage as well as uh right um, renewable energy so right which is great yeah. i think that's yeah. great um, and, you know, and I think as a state, you want to make sure that you're not overbuilding the system, which is why it gets back to the first conversation. We should be maximizing what we can do on the demand side simultaneously. So but that's great. And that is the kind of, and those are the models. And what I think will happen is where you have states like Illinois, which are trying to de-risk investment, they will be more attractive for people to put their investments in because they are de-risked and hopefully if nothing else that will influence other states to say oh we don't want everyone just to build in illinois why don't we do something so but it'd be nice if we could do it more regionally i like that and in in closing any any other thoughts on what you'd like to share with the listeners in terms of learnings in in your recent years that you think folks here on the state side should be thinking about? I think the, the most thing that I, I sort of can emphasize is that the, you know, the, the complexities are manageable and we could work through these issues. Um, I don't think ever it's going to be a technical issue. What I think that we should be aware of is that the speed of change will be like a lot of innovation. It feels somewhat slow now, but then it'll speed up and be faster. And what we can't afford is to not be ready for it. And the 
And the other thing that I, I would say along that is that this is a whole different experience because, you know, when we're talking about smart devices, et cetera, the, the thing that we are, frankly, every aspect of it, this is so expensive. We, we have to be thinking about everything we can to de-risk, take out costs, friction. And to me, a lot of this can be solved by better information and better understanding and visibility because, you know, these are expensive mistakes. Um, and he also is, is, I don't think we, I think we need to get out of this idea that everyone needs to demonstrate the same tech. We, we should be able to demonstrate it once and then say, right. oh, that works, let's deploy it. So that would, otherwise that, that also adds expense and uncertainty, which we can't afford right now. And any additional thoughts on how regulators can embrace and encourage an environment that, you know, that leads to innovation on the clean energy front. Yeah, I think one of the things we need to do, and you know, in in New York with the the Rev project, a, a lot of what we were looking to do was to make it uh, think in terms of both driving innovation, but also eliminate the bias against capital deployment and think about capital efficiency and productivity instead. So I think it's time for us, and I hear this over and over again, is, you know, utilities, because they're so biased to spending capital, won't do things in the software space. So I think the other thing that we need to do as regulators is really appreciate the role of software and, um, and, and operational efficiencies using, you know, DER, other people's capital, as one would say, as a way of making the grid itself more efficient. That doesn't mean that you, and and that we, therefore, we need to change regulation so that utilities' interests are more aligned with the consumer interest of a more efficient system. Um, And that would suggest a different forms of regulation, something closer to the TOTEX model that UK put in in place or, or what we did in New York. And I think if we, we move in that, direction, regulators can help nudge things forward. And um, to the extent we can make these models consistent, right, then we can deploy capital a lot more efficiently because it's rather than saying, you know, it's and, and I hear from folks, you know, how hard it is to sit in some of these proceedings, especially for uh, entrepreneurs. They just don't have the capability. And, you know, it doesn't, it, there's no advantage um, you would say, you know, to experimentation if we know things are going to work. And uh, and so I, I think the more Nehru could discuss around consistency of approaches, ubiquity, you know, I, I try to use the Uber model. You know, we all, we all like the fact that wherever we travel in the world, Uber works the same way. Well, that's because it has Google Maps <laughs> and, and it can work the same way. We need that type of thinking in the energy industry. It has to work the same way and be easy. I think those are great thoughts to end on. And I want to thank Audrey Zibelman and look forward to the next Grid Forward Chat. Thanks for listening to this episode of Grid Forward Chats. If you're interested in Grid Forward membership and our work to accelerate grid modernization and energy innovation, including the backlog of our podcast, visit us at gridforward.org. 
If you like the podcast, please share it with your friends and colleagues and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app.